0: We're in a study of the book of 2 Corinthians, so I would love for you to turn there. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we'll be. To give a little context to what we've been doing over the last few weeks, uh, in in chapter 3, uh, leading into this, Paul is talking again to a church that he had founded, He had planted, and they were in conflict with each other. They had kind of gotten to a place where they were not dealing well with his instructive teaching that was constantly dealing with things that they weren't doing well with. It's kind of like that parent-child relationship where the child finally says, I'm fed up not meeting the standard that my parents have, and you begin to rebel. And that's kind of the relationship And where it's at at this point is that Paul has a church that he had planted and invested a lot of time in that now is not wanting to hear from him. But yet they're struggling. They're they're struggling to move forward. And one of the reasons why they're struggling is they're sitting in this city that's known for its promiscuity. I mean, it is a city filled with prostitution. It's a city that, that was very worldly. And now this little fledgling church is starting to have an impact upon this city. And the city doesn't like it. And they're starting to face consequences of that disdain for their message because there's a lot to lose when your city gains most of its profit through things that aren't exactly biblical or godly. And and so they were a threat. The church was a threat to society. And so the people were starting to face persecution and, and they were starting to feel the pressure of it. And as a result, they're also becoming discouraged So Paul, who's got a broken relationship with them, wants to speak into them, but they're discouraged and they're not wanting to necessarily hear from Paul because in the past, Paul has spoken some hard truths. So is Paul going to be the source of their encouragement? Not likely in their mind, but yet that's what Paul is exactly trying to do. And so in chapter 3, he speaks to them in the midst of their discouragement, saying, Listen. You are competent, and you should be confident in what God is doing in you. God changes life. He is the source of life-changing power, not you. So you don't have to worry about your competency. Just continue to keep your eyes on Jesus and pursue him, and he will change your life. He is the one that creates this ministry of the Spirit who makes you righteous. He is, you know Righteousness on your own, you can't achieve. We would all fall short if we're trying to earn favor with God by what we do. We would fall short. And, and so God knew that, and he sent Christ so that on your behalf, you can discover the good news and the glory of the gospel. And he, then he talked about two things that happen. If God is changing your life, if he's changing your life, then, and you're staying near him, then things are going to begin to happen to you that you can't even see on your own. You're going to begin to smell of something different. He talks about that for those who are being changed every day by Christ, they become the aroma of Christ. And so as you, you know, if you go into a place that has a particular smell, you stay there long enough, you will begin to smell like that place. And when you go elsewhere, people will smell that you've been somewhere else. And the same way, if you're being near Christ, you'll begin to smell of Christ. And that's something that, that you don't create, it's something you absorb. And that's what he's saying is that, listen, church, church in Corinth, Do not worry about competency. Do not worry about confidence. Just be near Jesus and you'll begin to smell of him and people will smell you and it will point to something else. It will point to Jesus that's in you. And then he says, not only will you begin to smell of him, but there's going to be a tangible evidence that your life is radiating something different. And that's where he talks about you are the radiance of Christ. That as he changes you, you become that 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 light that is shining out in the darkness. And people are looking and saying, where does that come from? Because I'm looking at you and you're just a commoner. You're just a normal person, but yet, there's something coming out of you. And so he's laying this, this foundation that they were struggling with security and confidence. And he's saying, listen, your confidence isn't in you. It's in Christ. Let him continue to change you. And so they have an important ministry in that city in Corinth. So now Paul kind of says, okay, now that you know and understand that, that Christ is the source of what, he's, what is changing in you and you become that radiance and that smell, But he wants you now to to be confident in this ministry and see that you do indeed have a ministry, which is where we pick up in in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So let's begin reading there. It says this. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the uh, sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So for what we preach is not ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, uh, but Jesus Christ as Lord is what we preach. And this for ourselves... For Jesus' sake. For God who, it is God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. And, may, and then he made this light then shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So let me stop there and then we'll continue on here in a moment. So he starts with this phrase. So we have this ministry. Okay, so he's speaking to a group of people. He's just said, listen. You are competent ministers in Christ. He's the one radiating through you. He's the one that's making you smell. He's the one that's making you effective and changing hearts. It's nothing you've done. It is merely a work of God in you. So you have this ministry, he appeals to him. You have this ministry. So he goes back if, just to highlight again. In chapter three, he highlights what that ministry looks like. So let's just look at it. So it's a it's a confident ministry as he ends that chapter three. It's a confident ministry that brings life. Verse six of chapter three. It's also a ministry that brings salvation. Verse 11 of chapter 3, it brings salvation where we can have this hope to be changed and we are no longer separated from God, but we're now with God. And then the crazy thing, verse 9, where he says, and this ministry declares a message that says, and you are now in the eyes of God righteous fully acceptable, pure in the eyes of God, and capable of walking into the presence of God without fear because of this ministry that's being done in you. And all of this, verse 18, is a ministry of transformation. It's a transformation where you and I might have been this before we met Christ, but now we are becoming more and more like him. And it's changing us every day from the inside out. So this ministry is significant. So we have this ministry that he says in verse 1 again. We have this ministry. So therefore, don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't feel incompetent. This is an incredible ministry we have. But then he compares it to a different ministry. Verse 2, look what it says. It says, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. This is a different type of ministry. We've renounced the other type of ministry that has secret and shameful ways, and we do not use deception as this other ministry has. We do not distort the Word of God as the other ministry might do, and on the contrary, we set the forth set forth the truth plainly. We don't commend ourselves, uh, but rather we commend ourselves to everyone, and, and and we do so before them and in the sight of God. So, it compares to two different types of ministry. There's ministry that happens where a lot of the dealings become self-motivated or it becomes about an agenda. For instance, a good example. When Jesus was arrested on the night he was betrayed, what was going on in that scene was the religious leaders of that time were carrying out an agenda that was not known to the public. There was no accountability before the public. And what were they trying to do? They were trying to get Jesus to a place where he would ultimately then be killed. And they would get rid of the headache that they've had with Jesus for the previous three years. So they had a lot of secret meetings, they had a secret agenda, and then they began to distort the truth. They would speak truthful points that were out of the scripture, but then put it in a context where people received it differently from what was real. So it was a deceit, it was a distortion, and it was done in private. Paul says, no, the ministry that we carry is not a hidden ministry, It's a public ministry. We do it transparently. We do it before the people and we do it before the sight of God. So there is mutual accountability that what we do is being done transparently here before you and we do it transparently before each other, and we do it knowing that God is seeing and observing it all. So this is a ministry done in the light, transparently with truth, which is why you'll find most evangelical churches shying away from the idea of secret societies, Because in our lives, we're not to live in secrecy. Especially if those secret societies are practicing some form of religion. You can't uh, hold them into account. What are they teaching? What are they saying? What are they saying is the observation? What's to be the life change? Where's the accountability then? If it's being done in secret. So we shy away from that because our ministry is called to be in the light, before the people, transparent, and before God as our witness. And then he describes in verse 4 that that kind of ministry that's distorting the word of God or, or being deceptive, not being honest, it actually has a lead minister. Verse 4, look what it says. It says, for God is, I'm sorry, uh, for it is the God of this age has blinded The minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So it speaks to the adversary, the God of this world. That's Satan himself. He is at work trying to veil the eyes of people so they can't see who Jesus is. They can't see what he means for them. He, they can't see that literally if they were to be able to see him that they would realize that the light of God is wanting to shine into that dark heart of theirs and reveal truth that God wants to make them righteous and completely reconcile them back to him. See, if you're blinded, then you merely look at Jesus as a threat or a lunatic. You wouldn't see Jesus, the message of Jesus, as being something to receive if your eyes are blinded, you'd be, you'd be looking at it like, that is the most weird story I've ever heard. That a man was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, was sinless, died on a cross, and somehow got out of the grave three days later. Strange story, Right? And if you have your eyes veiled, that's all you look at. It is. It is ridiculous that somebody would be a fool that would fall for such a story. But if the if the veil is lifted and God has revealed the truth, then somebody sees the beauty of it and they realize that story was written for me. And so the adversary is trying to keep that hidden. Meanwhile, we have this ministry that says we're about God shining light from us so that others can begin to see exactly the truth of who Jesus is. Verse five says that that this ministry then isn't about proclaiming us. It's not about the light drawing people to us. It's not about the smell of Christ drawing people to us. This is about the opportunity when people see us and they smell us, it gives us opportunity to point to other. And in our case, pointing to the work of God in us. So we get the opportunity to be reflections of God himself. And so we get a chance to the opportunity to actually proclaim the glory of God by just being near Jesus. And what I love is in verse 6, Paul makes a beautiful connection to the Old Testament when it says that God said, let light shine out of darkness. That is a requote of Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. So God, I mean, Paul then ties back to the very beginning of Scripture when God calls out light for the first time and it comes out of the darkness and it begins to overwhelm the darkness. Now you have light. He says in the same way in this analogy that what was once dark, the hardness of your heart, all of us who are now in Christ, our hearts used to be one of the darkest places on this earth. But when the light of God penetrates that and the veil is removed, then you become What was once dark now, filled with light, transforming what is around just in the same way as Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 transformed the surface of the earth by having that light. So God uses us as vessels that were once dark to now become the ambassadors of that light. So again, context is group of people feeling incompetent. The group of people feeling unconfident, group of people feeling overwhelmed by what's going on around them and feeling a threat and therefore feeling like they're defeated. And he's saying to them, listen, what God did in the beginning of the New Te- Old Testament is what he's doing in you where what was once dark is now light. And you then have this special ministry to be the, 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 the bearers of a great news. Just so that they would understand the beauty of this, he gives them another analogy, not just the light analogy, he gives them another one, calling it with jars of clay. So let's start reading in verse seven to verse 12. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, Jars of clay. How many of you have heard that phrase before? If you were back in the 90s in, in, in Christian music, you'd know there was a band named that. It was actually what I took my wife on. Our first date was to jars of clay. And I brought with me three teenage boys that were in seventh grade. You can tell me I'm crazy or she's crazy for marrying me after that. But nonetheless, jars of clay means when I hear that, I smile because I know that was our first date with those three boys. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you have this jars of clay. And that's what Paul is literally comparing us to, is jars of clay. So, but, but this is different. It's saying jars of clay with treasure in it. Now, why would God do something like that? Why would God place treasure in a jar of clay? I mean, when you think about it, in their day and age all vessels that they would use to eat from or pour water out was was pottery. It was made at the potter's wheel. And so it was all pretty common and easily found. Archaeology can point to different seasons of time based on the type of clay that was used during that time because, again, it was very common. It was the common use. And so what Paul is basically saying is, look at us. We're just common jars of clay. All of us are. But there's something special about This jars of clay because there's treasure in it, and it it brings it value. And and so ultimately, because of this jars of clay with a treasure in it, it points to the fact that this glory that's in us is not sourced from you. It has to come from somewhere else. You're just a jar of clay. That's all you are, common use. But yet there's something in you that's worth a lot. In fact, it's priceless. So therefore, the source is elsewhere. And and then he also says, then it it just goes to prove that when something incredible happens from out of a jar of clay that's being poured out, then you know it's not sourced again from the jar of clay. It's from other. It has to be sourced from other because nothing like that could come from that pot of clay. And so Paul then says in verse 7, so we are then created with a purpose then to be used of God, to bring glory to him. So there's purpose in us being jars of clay, which then ties to another verse that Paul mentioned in Romans, the book of Romans. It'll be on the screen where it says this. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if he did this to make his riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, who he prepared in advance for glory? So in other words, when you, if, if Paul is saying, all right, the analogy is this. Everybody here in this church are simply jars of clay. We have different shapes. We serve different purposes, but it's all out of the same substance, just being used differently. And, and, and so we're common use objects. But then... God does something special. He creates little different designs to make you unique that he's going to be able to use you to do things on his behalf because he's going to put something in you that is priceless. So I'm going to ask at this point, Kira, can you give me your bowl, please? Kira, she's writing notes. She's taking notes of my sermon. This is awesome. Okay, Kira, can you bring that up? Thank you. All right, so we have here in my hand a purple bowl with white polka dots around it. On the inside is a pink bowl with white polka dots in it. If you were to see this bowl at an auction and they were starting to auction it off, this bowl would not get a dollar's worth of of a bid because none of you would know who made the bowl, what the story is behind the bowl, and it wouldn't, therefore, mean anything to you. Bowls like this are basically offered along with other things just so it can leave the auction house. That's the reality of it. But because I know who made this bowl, and because this bowl was made by somebody very special to me, then this bowl, if I, it somehow left my house and it was at an auction and I see it there, I would outbid anybody to make sure that bowl didn't leave my possession this bowl is priceless to me because I know it's maker and that maker means a lot to me. You see, I think that changes the perspective a little bit. We often look at ourselves and think, I am just a common person. God can't use me. That's for the really gifted types. Or I'm shaped this way. God won't use me in that manner because I'm shaped this way. And we think, well, why would God even value me in light of other things? Well, God took the time to make you. My daughter doesn't make things very often, and so when she does, it means a lot to me when I see it. And so this means a lot. Now, if I had created this bowl, then it would have value to me as well because I don't usually create things with my hands that look this good. And so if something actually came out looking this good, it's going to mean more to me than, again, any of the rest of you because it was shaped by me. But it's also even more valuable it was shaped by my daughter. So either way, it is a different perspective. And so sometimes we look at the common shapes of ourselves and we automatically belittle it. But if you look from the perspective of God, he remembers when you were on the potter's wheel and he shaped you. And he took the time to intimately design you for what he's going to use you as. So then for him, he looks at you while you might be seen as noble uh, by some and ignoble by others or just common by most, it doesn't matter. He sees you as he shaped you and for how he's going to use you. And then he puts something valuable in it, and then it means a lot. At auctions, sometimes when they get bowls like this, they'll put something in it to make it more valuable so that, again, it will go out the door. And so sometimes if there's a bull like this that'll be in an auction, if there's change in it, they'll shake it around. And people are listening. I hear quarters. I hear silver dollars. I'm going to bid a little bit more. And that's what they will do because they, they hear that there's something actually valuable in it. Well, guess what? God puts invaluable stuff into us. Those of us who are common, just normal, normal people, he will put something so priceless in you, that others will begin to see a value in you that maybe even you don't see. God sees you very differently than maybe you see yourself. And unfortunately, a lot of us live under the lens of how we see ourselves, and it's not often a good thing. We think of ourselves as being not talented enough, not being outgoing enough, or not being gifted enough to do anything on God's behalf. Yet what he says is, I created you. I spent the time with you on the wheel, shaping you as to weigh your shape, and I'm going to use you. I'm going to pour into you something so valuable that that others are going to be shocked. Why would you put something that valuable into that vessel? It's because he wants people that see that vessel, that experience what's being poured out of that vessel as not being from that human being, but being from God Himself. That's the analogy he's playing out here: is that that just as the, the clay pot's value lies mostly in its context, on uh, contents, so also our value is greater when the treasure of God is what's in us. We might be common. But there is potential, but our potential will never be utilized unless the source of our potential comes from God himself. If God is the one pouring in us, then what's the substance of us being poured out can change lives. God wants to change lives through each of us. That's why Paul is saying, we have this ministry that changes lives, and we've got to start realizing that God doesn't choose the most beautiful vessels. He chooses the common Because he wants the people to realize that it's not being you that's being preached. It's God that's being preached. It is the glory of God that's in you that is being seen, not the commonness of who you are. That's what makes it valuable. And then when people begin to see that the source of God is in you, then you are seen as priceless before others. Not based on the commonness of who you are, but by the substance that's in you. And it begins to change lives. And so he's saying this to give them confidence in who they are so that they wouldn't stop ministering to a city that so desperately needed God. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4. He says, says, we are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. We don't understand what's going on, but yet... We're not in despair. We're persecuted. Some of us are even dying for the faith. But yet, we're not abandoned by God. We might be even struck down. We might have had a really bad day. But guess what? I'm still not destroyed. I might even lose my life. And there might even be friends that are losing their life for the sake of God. But they're ultimately not destroyed because of what God offers in eternity. This is huge for them to hear, because again, some of them are dying. Others of them are simply experiencing hardship, and he's saying, but we're not destroyed. We're not despairing. We're actually living. What the enemy is trying to do is to crush us, but we still stand. And that's not because of the source being us, but rather the source being God. So then going on, he's then speaking very strongly in them saying, you know, your suffering is not something that, that God is just taking frivolously, but rather our suffering and our successes in this ministry are a part of experiencing Jesus. Jesus suffered and he succeeded in his life. Tell me this, when your life, and this is rhetorical, so please don't shout out. <laughs> but when you, and when you look back over your life and you look at the hard moments in your life, Are those not the time when God does his greatest work in you? Is that not when God purifies you the most or you begin to learn more about the heart of God when you're under the pressure of what's going on around? God does his greatest work when we're under the most intense of fire. And so why do we want it to go away? I mean, I get it. We pray. We don't like it and feel it. But why should we expect that it never gets difficult? So Paul says, listen, we have this great ministry. Don't let those trials and struggles discourage you to where you stop and you give up, but rather let those hardships create opportunity to brightly glorify Christ in you. Let the pressure that is going on expose this treasure that is found in you. And yet, I love this final statement where he says, you know, some of us are experiencing this idea, it's in verse 12, where it's like death is at work in us. It feels like we're dying right now. It's it's going awful for us. But yet, what does he say? But there is life in you too. While the world is trying to cause an erosion of your life, there is something going on inside of you that is filled with life. As one commentator said, always dying, but never lifeless. Always dying, but never lifeless. So what does Paul end this passage? Because again, he's just called us all commoners with something great inside of us that God can use. And God loves you because he shaped you. He formed you for these purposes. But then he still has a discouraged church. So what does he say? As one commentator, Matthew Henry, said this. He said this section we're about to read in verses 13 and 18 is this section where he says where Paul is saying, this is how you do not lose heart while in the throes of ministry. This is how you do not lose heart while in the throes of difficulty. So let's read it. So in verse 13, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have this same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though hourly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. And eternal glory is being achieved. And so for our light and momentary troubles are achieving this glory, it far outweighs everything else. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. So what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the, five, the four things here, that I, or five things we can take from this is this. That in verse 13 he says, okay, You might be losing heart, but you need to keep in mind that God has given us, if you've already trusted him, he's given you the spirit of faith. Faith being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. You see, this church had given themselves to a God that they could not see. They'd given themselves to Jesus, who they did not see crucified on the cross. They gave themselves to the hope of eternal life, even though they were still living in a temporary body. They had this faith, and he calls them back to it. Remember when you by faith accepted Jesus. Live out by that faith. Secondly, verse 14, he says that we have this hope because the same God who raised Jesus from the grave is the same one who says, I'm going to raise you up. After hundreds of years prophesying that the Messiah would come and that God would raise him up, That same God is now saying, I am going to raise you up. So if you feel like you're being crushed and you feel like you're being defeated, remember what he's saying here. You're not abandoned, you're not destroyed. And God is going to use you in this time of difficulty. God is going to do something great. And so while it might appear you're dying, you're not lifeless. God is doing something great. He will raise you up. Verse 15 then goes on to say that we shouldn't have our eyes then. It's very easy to focus in on the trials or the difficulties. But God says, I want you to focus in on the lies being changed around you. It's really easy to get caught up with what's not right about society around us and how they're treating Christianity rather than looking upon how God is changing you and changing others every day. And see, these people were affecting an entire city. The church of Corinth was aware of this little church's existence. Why? Because that little church was impacting one life by one life at a time. And so he wanted to remind them, don't get your eyes on how difficult it's getting. Realize it's difficult because you're a threat. And you're a threat because lives are being changed. We've got to have a different perspective. They needed a different perspective. They needed to look at not how hard it was getting, but look at why it's hard. And realize it's because God was changing them. And as a result, God was changing others. Verse 16, he then says, then we're to rejoice then. We're to get excited about the fact that while our outward appearance might be decaying, but inwardly we're being transformed. We're becoming more like him. We're becoming more hopeful. We're becoming more confident and competent because of what Christ has done. And then ultimately, verses 17 and 18, he says, so we're to fix our eyes, not on the things and the suffering around us, but be aware of what God is doing around us. But ultimately, we fix our eyes on eternity. This is where we fix our eyes on the one who is changing us, that we can get through whatever temporary challenges we have, because the ultimate permanent opportunity is being with God for eternity. And so if we realize that we have this prospect of eternity ahead of us, then how can we not be able to sustain through the temporary now? God wants to change our perspective, and some of us need to change how we look at ourselves. Again, most of us here in this room that have known Jesus for any length of time would would often say, I'm not the likely person God would ever use. I'm I'm, going to put myself on the sideline. God couldn't use me, but the reality is God wants to use you and change you, and so we need to let the work of God continuing on in our lives so that he can use us to transform the lives of others. people, not by us as being the source, but rather the treasure that is in the jars of clay. Would you pray with me? So God, I recognize that we... Often they have a low view of ourselves. And for those of us that have a, a, a more of a glowing view of ourselves, it, 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 either way, it's not the right view. Either way, it's, it's taking a long, uh, the wrong look at what's going on. The beauty is that when you take something simple and you put something that's priceless in it, it only goes to show that God's at work and that God is the source. So God, I pray that you would cause us that if there's any insecurity or if there's, any too much, or if there's too much confidence, whatever it may be, that you would work and help them come back to a place where they're merely recipients of something great that comes from you. So God, teach us anew to look differently with a new perspective that we can have that competence and confidence found in the work of the Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've talked about smelling good, Looking good and now receiving. All of that source from God. The smell, the look, and the substance. We're merely the treasure recipient of being the bowl, the pitcher. We're not anything special other than the fact that God sees us as special. He created us uniquely and so therefore we are. And then we get this privilege of somehow who he is gets to be poured out through us. Therefore, he gets the glory because there's no way you and I, being just common, could be used in such a way to change lives unless God was the one doing the changing. So we receive that. If your life has never been changed by God, we would love to pray with you. I'll be up front. There'll be people over underneath the cross. If you just need to pray with somebody and say, God, I need to see something different. I need to see myself differently to be that confident and competent person because of the love of Christ. Let us be that jars of clay that is willing and to receive from God that which is priceless and to be used to see lives changed. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.